This is episode 23 of Alohomora for February 24th, 2013. Hey everybody, I'm Noah Freed. I'm Laura Riley. And I'm Caleb Graves. And we are joined by our special guest who's been with us a couple of times, Michael Harley from MuggleMet uh, uh, Fan Fiction's Audio Fictions podcast. Say hello, Michael. Hi, everybody. This is the first time I'm on that I'm like scheduled to be here. <laughs> so this is very exciting. So I'm, I'm, and I'm, I was pretty determined to get these chapters of Prisoner of Azkaban because uh, Lupin is my all-time favorite character from the series and i actually like i was so thrilled when i found out from jk rowling's site that his birthday is actually like the day after mine so that made it even better yeah yeah he's a he's kind of a tragic character in the series but yeah a hero in his his own right at gryffindor yeah um before we continue, I'd just like to remind everyone who's listening now that we are analyzing chapters 7 and 8 of Prisoner of Azkaban today, and for maximum satisfaction of this podcast, we suggest reading the chapters before listening to the episode. So before we jump into it, if you haven't read the chapters, do it, and then you can comment on the forums and follow along with us in this great reread that we're doing with everyone around the world. So yeah, did you guys enjoy these chapters this week? I did. It was good to be, good to be back on schedule since I've been out for a while. It's good to be back, like reading and back on the show. So. Caleb, where, where have you been? Um, well, the f- two episodes ago, I was gone because I was at inauguration here in DC. Um, it was inauguration weekend. That's important. Um, last time I had to go home for um, something with family. So, but I'm back now, and we're going to jump right into the comments for um, last week's episode, or not last week, two weeks ago. But um, by the time you hear this. I wasn't on, but it was a really great episode. I listened back, and there were a ton of great comments, but picked a few to go over. Uh, the first one is um, actually came to us through our email. This is um, from Ellie. She um, emails us from Canada, and it's on the topic of Dementors. And Ellie says, if Dementors make you relive all your worst memories, can they potentially be used as rehabilitation for people like Lockhart, who have lost their identities through memory charms? You were talking about if there were, quote, happy Dementors to be used as a rehab for criminals. Maybe they could be used for those St. Mungo's patients who need to regain their identities. Or for people like the Longbottoms, so they at least wouldn't have to wallow in their misery all the time. Wow. That is actually a very creative comment. Um, I mean, it makes sense, but I feel like once the memories were obliviated from, for Lockhart, I don't think he could even relive those memories because they're pretty much erased. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and beyond that. I, I think it's so funny that her, like, at the end of Deathly Hallows, uh, Rowling said in an interview that Hermione went and put her parents' memories back, even though she performed a memory erasing charm on them. But, like, and maybe it was because Lockhart's memory charm was so corrupt because he used Ron's wand. But there have been other cases mentioned where it's like, if a memory is gone, it's kind of gone maybe because usually when people erase people's memories they're doing it for the purpose of erasing them they don't want them to come back whereas Hermione so maybe they do have the option they just choose not to because they did it for a reason so like there's a dark magic version of erasing memories well I just I think 
yeah, it has that purpose of erasing the memories, and maybe it's able to be reversed by the person that cast it, but who's going to do that if mm-hmm. they're trying to erase the memories? Whereas Hermione, she was erasing it not because she wanted to, but because she had to. But if the memories can come back in some capacity, as it seems to be proven, because she, Joe said that Hermione got her parents' memories back, where do those memories go in the meanwhile? Are they contained somewhere? Or are they, like, are they as opposed to erased, are they just kind of downplayed within the mind? Or, or like, I, like, how does that even work? I'm thinking of the way the pensive works, where they kind of extract the memory with the wand. And I know in the movie they make it very visual, like it's, like it's an actual tangible thing. But maybe it's something like that, whereas the person that casts the spell, those memories kind of get stored maybe in their wand, and that's why they're able to put it back should they choose like Hermione does. If that makes any sense. Mm. There's the other issue too that memories can be altered by the person themselves who hold that who holds those memories, like with Slughorn. So right. it's like if if you've distorted a memory and I don't know the caster is unaware of that or that memory hasn't been preserved elsewhere. Cause Slughorn was able to un- choose to unblock the memory, but there's that issue too of warping your own memories and you know, I suppose if that's obliviated, can you get that back? Hmm. So you guys had um, a pretty good discussion last episode about the issue of James Potter and why he becomes head boy, even though he wasn't a prefect. prefect. There were a lot of good theories and discussion on the forums, but I picked one that came from the main site from Rebecca the Ravenclaw. And she says, it is said by Hermione and Half-Blood Prince when Harry receives the Gryffindor team captaincy that Harry now has equal status as Ron and Hermione, who are both prefects. She says, quote, and you get to use our special bathroom and everything. (laughs) This, I believe, is how James was able to become head boy. He became Gryffindor captain, and that allowed him to sidestep the prefect prerequisite to become head boy. I can't remember if there is a passing reference to James being the Gryffindor captain in the books or if somehow I've just automatically gotten that impression, but I tried to fact check, and on the lexicon, they don't mention him ever being captain, though on the Harry Potter wiki, they say he was indeed captain. So there's some conflicting reports on this, it seems. And yeah, I think that's, I don't think we ever really get confirmed that James is captain. I think it would make sense, but I kind of thought that was an interesting way of looking at it as a way of ascending to the head boyship. Right, because we were saying since he wasn't a prefect, yeah. you know, how could he possibly just become head boy? So that makes sense. And I imagine someone like like a Hermione who probably thinks the head girl or head boy status is, you know, something that should be achieved through all the work done as a prefect. But I can imagine if that head boy title was given to someone who was just the Gryffindor team, team captain, I imagine someone like Hermione really having a problem with that. I'm sure. I think it's interesting that they re- they do achieve that same same status because it's athleticism versus you know academics and good right. character and merit and oh wow well but you if you're you know the captain of the Quidditch team you have to have leadership skills to successfully yeah. lead your team so there is if you think about Wood he definitely exhibits those yeah, Wood so. is a good example but now think of like the Slytherin captain who's you know but Slytherin's always a different example. <laughs> When you think about Pansy Parkinson being a prefect, I mean... That's true. And, and Slytherins just have different ideas about leadership. Um, so it would, it, would, it would make sense that the Slytherin captain of the right. Quidditch team could also be a prefect or head boy within Slytherin mm-hmm. because they have different values. Right. That's true. 
Well, and, um, there was a really, I just wanted to mention quickly, there was a really good comment in your forums by um, Firebolt, uh, who said he's actually had like experience with this being in Scotland, but that head boys are usually something different from prefects, and there are actually different expectations of the two, and that teachers tend to choose people who have more character, charisma, and that they have a closer relationship with. And I mean, on top of the fact that James might have been the Quidditch captain, we're not, that's not confirmed. But um, I mean, if you combine that as well, he he actually does, in the end, probably have the requirements of a head boy when you think about it. Yeah, I believe I've read somewhere that J.K. Rowling was a head girl from school. Really? I read that the other day. I don't know how much validity there is to it. I also really like, so the next comment's really quick. It's also, it's from the forums, rather. It's from Snuffles, <laughs> quickly responding to the head boy thing. He says, or maybe he just took matchmaking to a whole new level, meaning Dumbledore set up James to be head boy just so he could matchmake he and Lily. <laughs> or f- wow. I guess the case would be finalize that since it had already sort of started. Well, Dumbledore was really planning on this whole Harry adventure from the beginning, wasn't he? Right. I mean, I always think it's interesting that Ron was is eventually selected to be prefect and stuff just because I feel like there are more people in better standing than him. But... Yeah, what, what's what's up with just I think, Dean I think and Seamus? has ulterior motives in this. Oh, yeah. Dean and Seamus. Dean and Seamus were probably much better students than Ron. Mm, not Seamus. He blows everything up. That's in the movie. That's, that's in the that's movie canon. I still think that would probably be the case. Dean, I think Dean would be a good prefect, but... Well, who's making the call? McGonagall? Probably. She's a soft spot for Ron, clearly. Right. All right, so our next comment comes from the forums from one of our moderators, Allie Wood, and it's on the topic of Hermione and not liking Professor Trelawney. And Allie says, I actually think Hermione might have learned her lesson second year about teachers, and therefore, when confronted with this new teacher who she can see right through, she starts bashing her, for want of a better word. We see later that Hermione doesn't hate Trelawney, she just thinks she's a right old fraud. Poor Hermione is now skeptical of anyone who can show her proof of their great deeds because she was so deceived by Lockhart. I have to disagree with this because I think Hermione's distaste for this whole subject is less to do with Trelawney as a person and is more to do with the art of divination Where, because you see she gets visibly upset when it's like, you know, this isn't something that books are going to be able to help you. So... I think her fascination with Lockhart was largely, we've talked about this, that she was, you know, in love with him because of all the amazing things she thought he did. But I think her not liking Trelawney has more to do with Trelawney not being like, you're brilliant, most brightest witch of your age. It's she's saying, like, oh, you're not very good at this. And That's true. But I, I think that it works hand in hand with what Allie's trying to say. Because, like, yes, that is the reason why she was sort of enamored by Lockhart in the beginning. But then she realized by the end that, like, he was a fraud. And that sort of works mm-hmm. with her not being able to, like, have a concrete attachment to, like, divination and Trelawney. That's true. Well, and I think people were citing that because cause there was a huge debate going on about that in the forums and about Hermione's view on Lockhart versus Trelawney. And um, I think that pe- people cited it because Hermione adamantly refused to see any faults in Lockhart and 
for the entire year, even though Harry and Ron were pointing out everything that was wrong with him. And right. Lockhart wasn't really doing much to... It was pretty easy to figure out he wasn't good at anything. Um, but I guess you could also argue the fact that Hermione kind of cites books as the source. Um, right. So it's like Lockhart had published, as some people pointed out in the forums, Lockhart has published works. Um, and I guess Hermione just can't bring herself to believe that a book would lie. Would lie to her. <laughs> yeah. We have to, I think it's a different experience, though. I would kind of agree with you, Laura. With, with Lockhart, it was because, I, as you say, Michael, all of these books, she takes books to be facts. So she thought and fully believed that he had done all those things he did. So, of course, after that, she was, maybe she grew a little bit. But I think her issue with Trelawney, um, like, in, in, in addition to what you said, Laura, it's also a matter of pride because mm-hmm. she was told that you cannot, you're not as good at this. And I think she, maybe she won't say it, but I think she thrives on, a, on this teacher attention and the fact that you are smart. She also can't do anything to rectify it, really, because, you know, if you're bad at a certain subject, you can try harder and study harder, but she's saying you don't even possess the inner eye. Right, so right. This is like, something... No matter how hard she would try. Like, exactly. So it's not a matter of, of hard work that she can learn. It's something that you have to possess inherently, which she doesn't understand or doesn't believe in. And we learn later, um, farther down in the book, that her biggest fear is failure, because that's what her bobber turns into. Mm-hmm. But... Well, I think it's also perfectly mirrored right after their first lesson when they go see McGonagall and she not so subtly discusses her distaste for divination because it isn't a solid subject. And we've seen Hermione before have a distaste for things that she can't learn from books. Like in book one, she doesn't, she's very shocked at the fact that she can't learn how to fly from a book. So she grows to have a great distaste for flying and Quidditch. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, she she does tend to immediately reject things that cannot be learned from books. So, and and I think that's perfectly reflected. In, I think her and McGonagall pretty much share outlooks. I think on teaching and on su- subjects that are worth learning. Right. No, they're very similar yeah. characters. All right, and the last recap comment um, comes on the top more in general of teachers, and it's in the forums from Supreme Mugwump. And the comment says, Hogwarts has a lot of really bad teachers. Flitwick can't control a class. Snape is horribly biased. Hagrid, and apparently Kettleburn, bring lethal beasts to class. Benz's classes are always asleep. Trelawney is a fake. Lockhart's idea of teaching is talking about himself. And Umbridge's classes involve nothing but reading. Now, I know some of the people I've named here are villains, and so have to be bad teachers as well as being bad themselves. But it seems like McGonagall, Lupin, and Sprout are the only good teachers we see. So I think it would be really cool for Caleb to do a special feature evaluating the teachers of Hogwarts, whether they would be hired in a muggle school, assuming they all had teaching certificates, and if any, would be fired. <clears throat> so I read across this comment, and um, obviously the comment comes to me because I'm a high school teacher right now. So, I mean, we won't take into a whole special feature. Maybe we can expand this in the future. But I love this comment. I um, had not really thought about it before, but... Obviously, that is, like, yeah, there are so many of the teachers who aren't villains, but are not really fantastic teachers. I had not really thought about the fact that Flitwick is, as far as the classes we see from him, are not managed very well. He does not have good classroom management. Um, So I think he may get, when it came time for administration, or in this case, maybe Professor Dumbledore or Professor McGonagall, since she's 
the equivalent of a assistant principal, I guess, that he may get docked a little bit on his evaluation for classroom management. Um, wow, Flitwick! I never thought I, I never like him. I like Flitwick's classes just because his are more hands on than everybody else's. True, true but they, he still has. It seems like he has a little. He struggles a little, a little bit with the classroom management. Thing you like with the teacher mindset, you definitely want to have them um, kinesthetically engaged, but you don't. There's also the element of like keeping them under control, and I think actually really. Looking through this list, the teacher that I think does it the very best, who we see consistently, is Professor Sprout. Mm -hmm. I really think she is one of the better teachers at the school because she obviously is always very hands-on. She brings in instruction. She uses background knowledge. um, And she also has a very good, like, grip on the classroom management aspect. I think McGonagall does also, but um, I think Sprout does a better job of being more I think McGonagall is very like old school in that she like she is the classroom leader and she you know instructs herself, whereas Sprout brings the students into the the learning process. Well, but but Caleb, what about what about her, Professor Sprout's ethical practices? Um, Noah, that is just you. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the jury is still out on that one. Um, I'm, I'm just saying the ethical practices of these teachers are involved as well as should these teachers be effective. Would they be effective in real life? I mean, McGonagall turns a, a desk, a pig into a desk, and then possibly back again. That that's unethical. We're gonna get to Snape's animal torture later. Sprout has <laughs> I the man. I think Snape would um, get good good evaluations as a teacher, even though he does seem a little biased. But if an administrator or Dumbledore was in there, I mean, he does. I think he's a good teacher. Um, well, I don't think he nearly so. poisons Neville's frog. Uh, I absolutely think he's a good teacher because he he keeps them. He's not just like teaching them out of the book. He's making them be hands on. He evaluates them on their practical skills. Um, yeah, but he's so biased that he picks on certain students if they're inadequate. Like that's he doesn't just tell like redirect them or help them. He just yells at them. Like that's not yeah, that's not good I don't teaching. think he. I, I disagree. I don't think he yells that much. I think he definitely is biased in some cases. But like thinking what the way he would probably teach a Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff filled potions class, I don't think we would see the deep grudge that he holds to Harry and often his. Gryffindor pals. I think it would be at least lighter. I'm s- Caleb, Caleb, if I may, in this chapter, doesn't um, doesn't he find that Neville is not producing a good potion, and then nearly has him feed it to? Um, yeah, yeah, Neville's but toad. you also have to think magic is ma- a magical school is a little different. I mean, I do. I mean, when I'm teaching, are you assuming that Snape was going to save that? <gasps> Wait, toad? I want to hear that sentence be finished. I'm thinking the the level of like where that goes is different in a magic school. Just like the punishments are different in a magic school, like going into the Forbidden Forest versus a detention, you know, in a classroom. Like you have to think about the scale of things. Now, can I just bring up? I th- is Dumbledore doing a disservice? Assuming Dumbledore does the hiring, I think he does. Yeah, he does. Is he doing a disservice to the students by kind of making biased hirings? Like he hires Hagrid kind of because he's a friend he hires i mean lupin's a good teacher that's one thing but he is a friend he keeps trelawney around he keeps snape around like all these professors he's kind of hiring for personal reasons not all of them 
Well, I think that issue does come up because, as a lot of people mentioned in the forums and as was mentioned in uh, that comment by Supreme Mugwump, there there is no, like, as far as we know, there is no way to get a teaching certification. Like, you, you go to Hogwarts, and then I assume if you wanted to do that, you'd probably do something through the ministry, but it doesn't strike me that anybody has a teaching certificate. McGonagall didn't. She just kind of decided to not do her job at the ministry because it was boring. So she wrote to Dumbledore and said, hey, can I have the job? Lupin did the same thing when he found the ad. It's, I think that's kind of what Dumbledore has to do because Mm -hmm. I think they purely go on like personal experience that they know these people have. I mean, maybe you bring in a resume and just kind of say the things you've been up to while you're not at Hogwarts in your interim years. But uh, I think that's really all you can do. I think that's really all Dumbledore, Dumbledore was able to do, was just look at people he knew had good credentials and were also good students. Well, maybe that's has something to say to the fact that all these people are good wizards, but not necessarily good teachers. Yeah, I think that's true. But it's a very good thought, and we don't have enough time to go into each teacher. So what I think I will do, Supreme Mugwump, since you called on me to do this, <laughs> is I think I'm going to write an article or something that we can post on MuggleNet and Alohomora. My My teacher evaluations. Sounds good. So thanks for throwing that in. All right, so I think now we're going to discuss our special feature from last week, which was the unspeakables, where we went into detail of what makes a Dementor a Dementor. And this comment, this comes from our forums, is from Hufflepuffskeen, and it says, when you guys were talking about the Dementor on the train, you were mentioning all the people in the compartment that they were attracted to for their negative memories, but you didn't mention that, that there was a Horcrux within Harry. A little bit of Voldemort was in that compartment, too. And uh, I think that's a really good point, is that there's if there's a little bit of Voldemort within Harry, and Voldemort's kind of, you know, most wanted, apart from Sirius Black, that the Dementors would come crawling right towards him. Yeah, I wonder if the Dementors can sense that uh, Voldemort was inside him. Um, were they going after that, like that piece of Voldemort because like Voldemort is the most wanted or because Voldemort kind of calls out to them because he's right. all complete uber evil. I mean, I know the Dementors, that's the other thing worth mentioning is the, the Dementors, it is implied were going to every compartment. Um, so it wasn't just their compartment that ended up with the Dementor ex- kind of examining it. But the fact that the Dementor, did seem to have such a hold over their compartment and wouldn't leave. Um, I think that is definitely something worth noting, is the fact that Harry is a horcrux. Right, and I mean, the movie adaptation of this kind of, I feel like, warps my mind of this a little bit, because in the books they do kind of make it clear that the Dementor kind of just moves through every compartment, and it never makes it seem like he's preying on Harry in the way it looks in the movie, where it looks like he's sucking his soul out. Yeah. Um, it could have just been, you know, that it affected Harry more than the rest of them. But Well, is it because of the pain that's inherent in Harry because of the loss he suffered, or is it because of a piece of Voldemort's soul inside him? I think it has to do with the loss that he suffered, but the thing is is that, you know, Neville's in the compartment with him. Neville's suffered a great deal also. Um, and I know we debate on who's suffered more and stuff, but, you know, I think the fact that Harry has Voldemort inside of him certainly isn't helping. Right. It may not be the reason, but it may be a factor. Um, and here's here's another question, just interesting, that I, someone brought up in the forums, I don't know where, but if a Dementor had, gives Harry the Dementor's kiss, 
does that take out Voldemort's soul, piece of soul, as well as Harry's soul? And is that a way to kill a Horcrux? Oh, my God. Or does the mentor become a Horcrux? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I don't even know blow what you mean. Yeah, that did blow my mind. <laughs> Everybody go. What do you think? Um, I don't think that's destroying the soul. It's just extracting it. and I think Right, but would it extract Valdis as well? I think it would. Because it's kind of latched on to Harry's. But I think that it would kind of be embodied in the Dementor. Kind of. Ooh, so then the Dementor would become Voldemort's well, new I think Horcrux. the Horcrux would just be destroyed. Would you? I think it might be destroyed just be- too, because just that's such an extreme, dark magic that Dementors kind of are, that they embody. So I think that, because the... Uh, they kind of just feed on the soul. They don't house it, at least. That's implied. Right. And so, it's also, they're not really a physical yeah, being. Yeah. I don't know if you could, like, touch one. Yeah. But, you know, a Corcrux needs to be stored within an object. And now it's time for the recap of the posed question of the week from last week. I asked a lot about Professor Lupin. Here's what I Here's what I said. We've talked a great deal about Professor Lupin on this episode, and we brought up the fact that rather little is known about his backstory. Lupin's old briefcase seems potentially significant in the sense, in the scene where we first meet him, as it may mean that he has been teaching for a while now. As you remember, the letters on the briefcase were kind of tattered and coming, coming off, even. But do you believe Lupin had prior teaching experience before Hogwarts, perhaps even in the muggle world? In general, what qualifications does one need to teach at Hogwarts? Surely Dumbledore doesn't just pick random witches, wizards off the street. Or does he, as has been often uh, attributed to him as having poor choices and professors, as Caleb will tell you, most many of them are, uh, you know, not the greatest of professors. But here's, a, here's one good response from H.B. Allison. I don't see Lupin as having any prior teaching experience. He says at the end of POA that he's been unable to find paid work because of what he is. Then, in an interview, Joe said to take Remus first. Remus was unemployable. Poor Lupin, prior to Dumbledore taking him in, led a really impoverished life because no one wanted to employ a werewolf. I see Lupin taking on muggle jobs to make ends meet, but I, but I doubt he went to university or taught in the muggle world. What kind of knowledge would he have? He took on muggle jobs, but probably menial ones that gave him enough money to put food on the table, but still give him enough time to associate himself with the wizarding world. And he probably got sacked from those quite often. After all, he would miss work around the full moon, either because of the moon itself or because he felt so ill before and after. After you've lost a lot of jobs, it's probably increasingly hard for him to find another unless he always con- confunded his employers. Um, so that's very interesting. We have from Joe directly that he, he lived an impoverished life. Um, mm-hmm. But do you guys think he had teaching experience prior to his, uh, his hire? I think in the Deathly Hallows, it's evidenced, I guess, how much kind of self-hatred he harbors for being a werewolf because when he leaves Tonks for fear of harming you know, Tonks and his child. Um, I think he'd be so nervous about harming other people that I don't think he'd trust himself in any position, and it wasn't until Dumbledore kind of gave him that, you know, confidence maybe, that Dumbledore put his confidence in Lupin, that maybe then Lupin started to put it in in himself. Because he also leaves, you know, immediately as soon as he doesn't try to defend himself after he's fired. Right. You know, I, I don't think... I mean, I think Lupin might have had, like they said, menial jobs. I don't think he would have been around muggles. 
Um, I do not think he would have taken that risk. I mean, he leaves Hogwarts in the end because that gets out and he realizes that that was stupid. Um, so no, I, I'm, even if he did have menial jobs, I think they would have been in the wizarding world and they wouldn't have lasted very long. Yeah, I would agree. I don't think he would take that risk. Um, and as you've said, Michael, you know, his, you know, Lupin sentiments very well. Um, so I'm sure you can feel that. Here's another answer from musical Patronus. I don't think Lupin was a professor before, but I totally see him aspiring to be one. I think his classes were the most beneficial, and I think he has a special gift for teaching. I just think his affliction got in the way of his dreams. Obviously, Dumbledore would have hired him no matter what, but would the Ministry have let him if they knew he was a werewolf? I don't think they would. Um, Yeah, we know werewolves are kind of marginalized in society, but I'm not sure the degree to which that is the case. Um, What jobs would werewolves do? Yeah. Um, I mean, he yeah, he definitely would not have been able to be hired. Well, really, the only other werewolf we know is Greyback, and we see he kind of went the evil, on the evil end, that, you know, maybe people that become werewolves, some people kind of take on that personality, like, you know, right. just become about it, and that's who they are now. Whereas I think Lupin, you know, doesn't want to associate himself with that identity, so... I don't think there may be, be a lot to compare to of other werewolves that had been raised as bitten as a child and stuff. I'm like sure that. that idea of werewolves in society as the ones who are the aggressors, um, because we know they exist, Greyback and, and right. the rest of some of the other werewolves, they have a taste for blood even if they're not transformed. So that creates a sentiment in society um, that, like a sense of fear, just even if you're a werewolf, people, even if they know you're good, will associate you with this bad um, culture of werewolves. And also... If there's other good werewolves out there, I doubt they're bragging. Not they're not talking about it. You know, they're kind of keeping that as a secret to themselves. And I'm sure they only know. They only have as much people in their lives that know about that secret as Lupin does. So maybe Rowling should give us more on Pottermore about werewolves in society and like the kind of efforts they've made. That would be useful. Right, because I think if there's any good people out there, you know, we won't hear about them because they're not. They're keeping it a secret too. Well, I, it's it's. I just think it's a great like parallel to. I, I know it's been in in real life. It's been Lupin particularly has been used kind of as a parallel for a lot of things about social injustices um, and how people are treated and prejudices in the workplace. Um, so I think that's kind of what we're looking at here too. I mean, there's people who like you're looking at Fenrir, who is like the extreme end, who just completely embraces that werewolf culture so to speak and like you know werewolf pride and does not back down and he he wants that all to be out there and doesn't care whereas i think lupin is more like kind of conservative and would prefer that people see him as a person first a wizard first who just happens to be a werewolf um i think that parallel though is kind of what makes it dangerous because that implies that for those um sidelined um those those groups that are sidelined as far as social justice goes it implies that they have like an evil end to them like that is parallel to Fenrir so I think that's kind of you have to be careful about you know ascribing that to the social injustices that go on right now for us in the real world oh yeah I don't think most people use Fenrir as an example for that yeah no 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 I'm just saying like (laughs) that that's kind of something that I just thought about oh yeah no for sure Just uh, just in closing, if any fans out there want to write an editorial about werewolves and wizarding society and what it might mean as political satire, 
um, in our world. Like what is Joe saying about um, our society? You know, write an editorial up uh, just or a short essay, and you can email that to know at staff.mugglenet.com. And uh, I would happy, I'd be very happy to post that on our site. Um, but that, that, I mean, that pretty much wraps up our posed question of the week discussion. All right, so I guess now we're moving on to our chapter discussion for this week. We'll be talking about chapters 7 and 8, which are The Boggart in the Wardrobe and Flight of the Fat Lady. Chapter 7. Ridiculous. In the Boggart in the Wardrobe. Ridiculous. So at the beginning of this chapter, we are in a potions class, and Malfoy is still milking his injury, um, which is really annoying because he's being such a wuss, but we all know what he's doing. Um, but the the thing that I pulled out of this this potions lesson was some some more animal cruelty, and I hesitate to pull bring this up because I'm afraid of what Noah will do. Will be a Twitter account in ten minutes. I'm surprised you're the one bringing it up. Yeah, but um, so Snape, as we've kind of mentioned in the pre the recap comments, is threatening to feed Neville's likely terrible potion to Trevor to see how successful it was. And I, I'm also just thinking. Poor Trevor. He's he's always getting lost. Neville can never, you know, take care of him properly. Now he's going to be at the wrong end of Neville's terrible potion. But of course, thankfully, Hermione, you know, whispers him some instructions to fix it. But if she wasn't there, good grief, poor Trevor. But but Caleb, don't you think that Snape probably was going to save the Absolutely toad with, a, with not. maybe a bezoar? Absolutely not. No. No. <laughs> he was going to let the toad be poisoned and die. Oh I, well, I don't think he would. No, I see what you're saying now. No, I don't think he would have let him die. I thought you would mean um, like just prevent it from happening. No, he'd probably like make Neville suffer and think he's going to die and then fix him at the last second. That's what I was saying. I'm sure Snape was going to save him at the last moment, but because we're getting this through Harry's point of view, we just think that he's going to poison the poor frog right. and let them let him die. Um, but Snape's better than that, right? I do. Yeah, I agree. But yes, definitely animal abuse, so haha. I mean, that's nothing to laugh about, but you don't. Know I mean. <laughs> Whoops. I was wondering why Neville had. Does he carry around Trevor everywhere? Why he's bringing it to Snape's class so that Trevor can be picked on by Snape? So yeah, I was just wondering what exactly the strictness of people carrying around pets in class is. I know that's not allowed in muggle schools. No, I do not like and, let my students bring their pets in. Right. And that just also just <laughs> gave me the thought of the Gryffindor roommates of, you know, Ron's got a rat running around, sleeping in his bed. Neville's got the toad jumping around. Like, I would not be okay if I had a roommate. My roommates had their strange pets. I would not want a rat kind of running around. What if, well, what if it wasn't a rat? What if it was, like, a, secretly a man um, transformed well, as a rat? Oh, that makes it definitely better. <laughs> would that be better? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting that they carry around their pets, or he does at least, in a class. Well, I mean, if he doesn't, if he doesn't, Trevor's just going to hop around the castle. I mean, he's going to do that anyway, but... That's true. After the potions lesson, we start... Well, Harry and Ron start to notice thing, something. something's up with Hermione. I mean, they started to suspect it before, but now they're starting to really see it. Because all of a sudden, she was talking to them, but then she's gone, and then they see her farther down the corridor. So, they start to notice that something, something's up. And it made me wonder, are other students who are in her other classes starting to notice this as well? As she's using, we know later, she's using the time turn to get to all of her classes. And then, even beyond that, it made me think, this book is really heavy on secrets. I mean, we have Hermione and the time turner. 
We have the history of Sirius Black. We have Peter Pettigrew, Peter Pettigrew really being Scabbers, Lupin a werewolf. Like, there's just so many secrets circulating the castle throughout this book. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Now that I think, well, the the Marauders map, like the ultimate secret. Right. Um. I, the the interesting thing too I noticed was that there's a lot of like maybe they're these, these somehow complement each other, but there's also a lot of grudges in the book. Um, Malfoy's grudge against Hagrid, Snape against Lupin, Sirius against Pettigrew, Harry's misplaced grudge against Sirius. Like these secrets and grudges seem to go hand in hand because nobody wants to talk about like the truth, and so they're all harboring these terrible grudges that are often misplaced anyway. So I'm wonder like I have to wonder if that's what appeals to so many people about Prisoner of Azkaban because it is one of uh, often I find it's one of the most popular in the series. Yep, it's definitely my favorite. Well, my favorite other than the last book. So for a long time, it was my favorite for that reason. Oh yeah, Prisoner mm-hmm. of Azkaban's my favorite. So. It's my favorite movie, but my favorite book is Order of the Phoenix. Mm. It's also my favorite movie too. I'm kind well, of biased. I, I would disagree with the movie. Well, yeah, I'm okay with that. I mean, I, I like the movie, and I like the movie as a movie. Well, it took me many years to get to that point, but I just <laughs> I will I will never forgive Alfonso Cuarón for his adaptation. I think he's he's one of my favorite directors. He's brilliant. Um, but I think he tr- well, I could talk about this for hours. But I yeah, just, talk, we got to do this for the okay. live show. So after after the potions lesson and Harry and Ron suspecting Hermione, they get to their first Defense Against the Dark Arts lesson, and it's their first actual good Defense Against the Dark Arts lesson after two years of miserable failures. And so we get we find out that Lupin is going to be much more of a hands-on professor, so they're very excited about this. And they leave the classroom because they're going to go somewhere else to do this lesson, and they run into Peeps. And um, Lupin uses this. So first off, Peeves is making fun of Lupin. So you kind of get a sort of a flashback of what it must have been like when Lupin was in school. <clears throat> but um, Lupin uses this Wadawasi, or however you say it, I don't know, on Peeves. Um, and we also, like I was saying, we see a smile as Peeves is starting to call him names. So it's like Lupin call, um, bringing back his school days, which I never really thought about um, previously reading but now for some reason it made me think oh so he's you know he's reliving his days at hogwarts which you know there must there must be a good amount of nostalgia there but it's also got to be very bittersweet because you know he thinks about james and and lily and you know at this point he doesn't really know what's up with sirius so that's got to be also really hard to remember his school days and pettigrew is dead in his eyes right wow so i was just thinking that must that must be really bittersweet yeah. We're calling happier times. Do you think he had like a history with Peeves as a jokester? Because if he, the Marauders were jokesters oh, themselves, I'm sure. kind of like Fred and I George. Think, yeah. So they probably go way yeah, back. Yeah, I'm sure it's a very similar relationship, which is why I also think it's interesting Peeves doesn't like, we don't see more from that from Peeves. And maybe there are other scenes that that happens, but we don't see it as the reader. Right. And it made me think, similar to how you were saying, like George and Fred's relationship with Peeves, I wonder like what sort of things the Marauders did to combat Peeves wonder if Peeves knew that Lupin was a werewolf. Mm. I have to wonder, too, if because uh, the thing that, you know, we find out, at least in Book 5 with Fred and George, is that Peeves has a kind of odd respect for Fred and George, whereas here he has no respect for Lupin. So you would think if Lupin was kind of a jokester at the school, because it, it's kind of implied that Lupin was the one who kind of sat on the edge and watched all the crazy jokes, but he didn't really participate because he was always kind of going, we shouldn't be doing this. Um, 
so I wonder if yeah. that's why Peeves doesn't partic- doesn't have show any particular respect for him. So, but this Michael, is- would you say mm-hmm. would you say he's the Neville of the group in a way? No, no because way. <laughs> no, no way. he's the Hermione of the group. If anything, whoa. I don't know, just because there's some weird back and forth between Snape, Lupin, and Neville in this chapter. Um, and he seems to be really sympathetic to Neville because Snape's been picking on him. And I wonder if Snape's picking heavily on Neville because, in front of Lupin, because maybe Lupin was kind of like the Neville of a group. Well, I was going to bring this point up later, but I guess it fits now. That I find it interesting, really, that Snape is such a bully towards Neville. I think it makes sense that he is towards Harry, because obviously there's a deeper grudge there. But having been bullied by arrogant students like James and Sirius his whole time at Hogwarts, I don't know, I just think his total, like, ridicule of Neville is, you know, interesting, that he aligns himself more with the bullies that he had been bullied as a child. Well, Snape's, uh, actually, Snape's resentment for Neville goes way back to the prophecy because he also kind of wishes that Neville had been the chosen boy ah. so that Lily wouldn't have died. Very true. There's a great editorial on MuggleNet about that. That's um, true. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that's true. I, but we're getting way off topic. Yeah. So when they get to the Boggart lesson, Lupin <clears throat> introduces them what a Boggart is and one of the most interesting um, creatures for the whole series. I got to say, Rowling did an amazing job with this. We'll get to that more later in the special feature. Um, but he, he has a quote where he says, I, I've even met a boggart that had lodged itself in a grandfather clock, which is really amusing to me. And it makes me think, first off, that because he's talking a bit about his work with boggarts before, and it can't be that, you know, boggarts are just in some way naturally inclined to go toward Lupin. He must have been exposed to them in some sort of other capacity. So it makes me think, other than the teaching, um, history that we've been sort of talking about he must have been doing some sort of removing dark arts related work it's like an exterminator yeah prior to teaching um lupin the like the uh he was an exterminator he was a magical exterminator that's what he did something like that because i can't imagine otherwise why he would have such a so many occurrences with boggarts and other creatures it's mentioned on Pottermore, and this is kind of just extrapolation from very little information, and I really am so regretful that the information on Lupin has not come out yet, because I know she said she wrote <laughs> it, and I was like, it's going to come out before this show, and that was such a bummer. No. Um, but um, it, she briefly mentions in the section about Bogarts that uh, somebody named Lyle Lupin defeated a Scottish Bogart on work for the Ministry of Magic, and I'm of course, this has to be a relation to Lupin. I don't know if it's like a, his father, grandfather, or we're going even farther back to somebody he may not even have known. But I think it's really interesting that she was she's already associating his family with like Bogart fighters. So I'm I mean I'm even wondering if this relative was somebody who taught Lupin um, about magical creatures, possibly just Bogarts or other magical creatures when he was young, or before he went to Hogwarts, or during his time at Hogwarts. Or maybe even after. Um, so it, it's just that we don't have that backstory yet. Yeah. yeah, I definitely think so. I can't, I mean, we know Rowling does everything for a reason. So I can't imagine that not being the case. In some way, there's some connection. Perhaps he was a housemaid in like a muggle home. And that's why he found um, all these boggarts hidden in grandfather clocks and stuff. I'm just going to try to not imagine that. So him being a housemaid. Okay. I'm already imagining it. Anyway. <laughs> uh, okay, so 
Um, I thought a lot more about the Bogart um, and the way that Lupin talks about it um, because he's talking about what what defeats the Bogart is you know you have the spell we have ridiculous that you know changes the bo- the form of the Bogart to something amusing but it's really laughter that defeats it so it's not just really the magic in a spell sense that defeats the Bogart but laughter <clears throat> so it's kind of this idea I thought of it as true fear and darkness cannot be defeated by just magic but really by by joy and happiness and laughter. And I wonder if that sort of parallels that there's not really spell or hard magic that defeats death, but rather this emotion, this really powerful emotion that is love. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. That, well, and I think it's so... T- I have to agree. I think it's so interesting that these all of these kinds of spells are associated with Lupin. Um, like, because he, his whole kind of basis for what he does is just like finding the humor and joy in magic um which a lot of the teachers don't do i mean this extends to the patronus charm as well um and for this to be the first thing that he decided to teach he could have taught whatever um Mm -hmm. so to go off of this and just be like you know what magic is fun let's have some fun because he has (laughs) so the whole werewolf aspect of his life which i imagine is significantly depressing and is you know being unemployed and you know he doesn't have any relationship yet that you know magic is a happy thing for him it's something that's you know has brought a lot of happiness to his life yeah but i I kind of i want to us to keep be mindful of this sort of thing as we keep going through the books you know these really like deep elements like now we're talking about fear and darkness and previously and throughout this series we're talking about death and what it is that actually defeats them and see if we can catch any more like this and i think it'll definitely be brought up with the patronus and that it has to be a really happy memory it's not a matter of just saying expect a patronum yeah you know there has to be something deeper there right so yeah i definitely think we can find a bunch of parallels yeah um, so then we, we start off the lesson with Neville, and I think I really love that um, Lupin really is trying to give Neville his chance to succeed um, and gain this confidence. And he gets just as much enjoyment of the transformed Snape as everyone else. And this is one of my favorite scenes from all of the films, because Alan Rickman is just pure genius, and <laughs> him coming out with that get-up is just fantastic. Perfect. Can you imagine filming that? Um, he's so great. And... I'm also thinking just when Neville in the book is describing what his grandmother is wearing, I'm thinking, what a choice by Augusta Longbottom with that vulture hat. I just, yep. I cannot. <laughs> put a stuffed vulture on and my And she head. always wears that one hat. I just, I don't know. But isn't that interesting that Lupin just did this because he wanted to see Snape in some grandmother's <laughs> Well, story. I mean, it's both, right? He's wanting Neville to get a chance. Because I don't think he knew that Snape was his fear to begin with. No, no, he didn't. I don't think he was expecting that. Yeah, but it be. was a no. definite bonus for him, so. <laughs> and then Snape is eventually going to hear about this. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, and who knows what kind of talks go back and forth in the teacher's common okay. room about said right. things. And so we get to see a lot of characters in their boggarts, and it made me wonder, can we figure anything out about these characters in their boggarts? And maybe this is something we can throw um, to the fans to give back to us. But we know that Pravati is, um, sees a mummy, Seamus sees a banshee. Um, it mentions some people get, it doesn't say who, someone has a rat, someone has a rattlesnake, someone has an eyeball, which I don't understand. But Okay, I have a really big problem with this because it's like dean with the the severed hand like 
the Snape's fear, uh, not Snape, Neville's fear of Snape, that's legitimate. Harry's fear of Dementors, that's legitimate. Is Dean, like, sitting up at night worrying about severed hands? It makes like, me think that he's that... been traumatized by something. That's why. Yeah. Well, no, that's not funny. It's a severed hand. He probably like has been traumatized because of some experience. <laughs> well, I, I think what I, th- I think what Laura's getting at is just the idea that these very fears creatures. are are yeah they're specific and they're they're all I mean they're all like kind of magical creatures things Horror that movies, yeah like things right? under the bed you know like they're not really yeah. like and I think that's I think that kind of is answered by Lupin later on in the book when he states that to Harry that there are horrors in his past that the other students don't have. And that's why his yeah. uh, Bogart is a bit more profound than everybody else's. I think there, cause I was wondering, we can talk about this more later, of course, but if a uh, Bogart is like, does it change reflective of somebody's age and experience because people can overcome their fears. So yeah. right. wouldn't I that... just had to with the exchange he has with Seamus where Seamus like oh did you see me take on that banshee and Dean's like yeah did you see me take on that hand like, I, just, good for you, I just don't think that JK Rowling is unintentional in anything so I think that she chose these for while they are like you said those common like under the bed kind of things in some ways with some of them like I just I think she picks them for a very specific reason and I don't know if we'll ever yeah. get those reasons for her but I really do think that they have a, a purpose and uh and the truth is that Dean Thomas has a kind of a, a huge backstory that was right. written that apparently hasn't been published yet. So maybe we would get some hints of that severed hand. Yeah. And Something I mean, happened. I also want to bring up the fact that Lupin mentions he, when he's talking about the fact that Bogarts get confused, but he kind of passingly says, Oh, someone was a flesh eating slug. A Bogart was a flesh eating slug. Like, Thank you. I wasn't, I didn't used to consider my biggest fear to be flesh eating slugs, but now that you mention it, like all these things are so specific and frightening, but yeah, I did not enjoy that example. Chapter eight, flight of the fat lady. All right, so this chapter was called The Flight of the Fat Lady, which I thought was funny because the book begins with the flight of a fat lady in terms of Aunt Marge. <laughs> Good call. If you think about it. Mm-hmm. I never thought about that. That's really funny. <laughs> that is pretty funny. Um, so the chapter begins with uh, with Draco just making a weird comment in the very beginning about how Lupin has tattered robes and is therefore not a good professor and makes the connection between Lupin and Dobby because he feels like they're dressed the same. Um and I thought, okay, class is Draco. You're always doing your thing there. But why – is there anything significant about the connection to Dobby of between – I've never thought about it before, but do you see these characters as having anything similar? The only connection I could think of was that they both carry they're, – they're, in their respective major books, Chamber of Secrets and Prisoner of Azkaban, they both carry information that's integral to the overall mystery of the plot, but they won't reveal it. Um Dobby's got all the answers. Lupin's got all the answers, um, but they don't say anything throughout the until the end. They also so. b- they also both try to stop Harry when they think he's in big danger. Like Dobby obviously mm. does in Chamber of Secrets, and later in Deathly Hallows, Lupin tries to stop them, or at least well, he tries to I guess kind of in a way stop them, but then he tries to join them. So that's a little different. But never mind. Yeah. And then then spoiler warning: they both um. Well, yeah. Okay. Let's not talk about yeah. it. Okay. I'm sorry, Michael. I'm, I'm sorry. Oh God. <laughs> move, move on, quick. Move on. So, um, 
Yeah, so Harry's really loving defense against the dark arts. He's having the best time in the world, except he's hating potions. Uh, potions is terrible, as per usual. Um, and we get more scenes of, of Neville, and it seems, again, that Snape is being particularly nasty to Neville, and Lupin is being very nice to Neville as the story of what happens kind of goes throughout the school and to the, the staff about what, um, you know, what Neville kind of did to Snape in Bogart form. So what do you, what do you, so I just, like, it seems like Neville is this medium by which Snape and uh, Lupin can kind of get at each other that is, doesn't come across when they actually see each other in, the, uh, in the, the room a little later when Harry's there. But what do you guys think of that as, as Neville being this kind of medium by which the two get angry at each other? Yeah, I think it's, I didn't really think about this before, but I think we can see these points as the books go on now where Rowling has ways of making Neville a larger character, and this is one of them. Um, you know, in Goblet of Fire, he helps Harry in a way with one of the <clears throat> challenges of the Triwizard Tournament, but I think this is a way that Neville really comes to the front as one of the really important characters. Right. I mean, I'm not, I don't, I, I wouldn't say it's ethical as teachers to do this, to kind of yeah. fight through a student, but at the same time, I don't think that's what Lupin was intending to happen. And and because, but the thing is, at the same time, I, I know Lupin knew that, he, like, this would tick Snape off and that the word would get out because this is a very juvenile thing of Lupin to do. It also helps because, I mean, at the same time, it makes him an awesome teacher because he appeals to very 13-year-old sensibilities, um, and he definitely gets the students on his side, but at the same time, I know he probably knew Snape is just a sourpuss who doesn't have any sense of humor. You also have to so. think that that Lupin was very good friends, most likely, with Alice and Frank Longbottom, so just like he's, you know, sort of looking over Harry, he's also doing it for Neville in a way, too. Yeah. So. Yeah, he's just he's just looking out for him, so... Well, I, th- I thought, I thought in any case, I thought both were kind of manipulating Neville a little bit over much, you know, a little too much. But, you know, what what have you? They they go way back, as we all know. Um, moving through the chapter, we get to Quidditch. We get the first mention of Harry's taking up the Quidditch team again, and Oliver Wood is pumped for this uh, for this new year. He wants to win, and I just want to kind of read the speech that he gives. If everyone's yeah, cool with that. Gryffindor haven't won for seven years now. Okay, so we've had the worst luck in the world. Injuries, then the tournament getting called off last year. Wood swallowed, as though the memory still brought a lump to his throat. But we also know we've got the best ruddy team in the school. He said, punching a fist into his other hand. The old manic glint back in his eye. We've got three superb chasers. Wood pointed at Alicia Spinett, Angelina Johnson, and Katie Bell. We've got two unbeatable beaters. Stop it, Oliver, you're embarrassing us, said Fred and George, Weasley together, pretending to blush. And we've got a seeker who has never failed to win us a match, Wood rumbled, glaring at Harry with a kind of furious pride. And me, he added, as an afterthought. We think you're very good, too. The point is, Wood went on, resuming his pacing. The Quidditch Cup should have had our name on it these last two years. Ever since Harry joined the team, I thought the thing was in the bag, but we haven't got it. And this year's the last chance we will get to finally see our name on the thing. So uh, it kind of it builds up, and it's great. And Oliver's, this is our year. This is our year. We'll do it, Oliver. And they, they all get together, and it's really funny. Um, and then uh, to sort of finish my big speech with something that people will think is not as exciting – the, there's this passage on page 109. Full of determination, the team started training sessions three evenings a week. The weather was getting colder and wetter, the nights darker, but no amount of mud, wind, or rain could tarnish Harry's wonderful vision of finally winning the huge silver cup, Quidditch Cup. So Harry returned to the Gryffindor common room one evening. I'm just going to stop it right there because 
people don't realize, but so much time just passed in just the phrasing of that section because Joe just sort of suggests that he's been having suddenly many Quidditch matches every week. Um, so like she just made this huge jump in time narratively. Um, and I, I just thought I was really cool for noting that and figuring that out. What do you guys think? I, I think that, I mean, the thing I get out of that passage, cause that is a pretty, pretty good way to transition <laughs> through, but cause the thing I got from the passage was that the weather was changing because of the Dementors. Um, it's kind of her right. subtle suggestion, like, Oh, they're around and that's why it's always raining. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's it, it is a lovely little way to kind of just make the time pass because this is probably I think the the reason she does that here, especially in this book, is because I've always considered Prisoner of Azkaban and Half Blood Prince to be the books where they're probably Harry's most normal years, quote unquote. Um, just because the the conf- the final confrontation is with isn't with Voldemort and he's not anticipating that it's going to be throughout the entire year so right. it's a pretty much just a normal year he's just kind of going through the classes the going through the motion so I think she did kind of have to speed up time a little bit because there's not a lot going on in between it's like she has a narrative time turner if if I may say oh um, and <laughs> and who knows just how many months we jumped in that moment or weeks um, well we know it's to Halloween. Because there's a feast. All right. So, so in any case, we back, get back to the common room, and Hermione is with Crookshanks, and Ron, of course, is suspicious because whenever Crookshanks is around, he's always going for um, Scabbers. So Scabbers is hiding in his bag, um, and then Crookshanks actually launches on the bag when Ron leaves and is going for Scabbers. Scabbers gets out and hides under, a, I believe it's a, a tapestry, um, but. Ron says rather famously, it heard me say that Scabbers was in my bag, talking about Crookshanks. Um, and I wanted to put it to you guys. We know that um, Crookshanks is very intelligent, you know, something like a familiar almost if we were going into a Golden Compass, Golden Compass kind of series thing. But do you think that Crookshanks can actually understand Ron? Yes. Or did it just sort of sense that Scabbers was there? I think I think both because he's half Neasel. So right. he's, he's, he's intelligent enough to... Because I think the other interesting thing is how Crookshanks approaches this whole thing is he hops up on the couch and is like slowly chewing a spider in front of Ron, which Ron takes as kind of like a punch in the face, but it's not like it's not meant to be. Crookshanks is actually being like, look, I caught a spider. You hate spiders, so I'm eating them. (laughs) So so he's actually in a very misguided way. He's trying to be nice to Ron. Poor Crookshanks. Um, He was trying to be nice. Maybe he knows Ron's scared of spiders and he's saying, look, I can, I can, I'm a ginger cat. I'm getting the spider for you. It's not going to harm you. Yeah. I just wanted to ask what you guys thought. Because obviously Ron mentions that Scabbers is ill and we know obviously that he's Pettigrew. That he's, you know, nervous or about something. And I just was curious, does Pettigrew know that, like, Black is out after him? Or is he nervous about the Dementors or just the fact that Crookshanks keeps trying to eat him? Um, that Voldemort's out there or whatever? The answer to that is later in the book on page 363 to 364. And, uh, it well, at least this pretty much answers it. It's Lupin says to Ron, he's not looking good at the moment, though, is he? Uh, I guess he'd been losing weight ever since he heard Sirius was on the loose again. And then Ron insists, he's been scared of that mad cat. Um, but then <laughs> Harry realizes uh, 
That's not right. Scabbers had been looking ill before he met Crookshanks, ever since Ron's return from Egypt, since the time when Black had escaped. Yeah, so he probably heard the Weasleys talking about it. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. That makes sense. And I mean, I'm sure the trio keeps talking about it, too. Right. So that's how he gets his info. I'm surprised he doesn't ever try to, like, transform back into, you know, his human form, like, at night or something, and try to snoop around um, and try to figure stuff out. I guess he's just, there's really no... Too risky. Too risky, because everyone thinks he's dead. I'm surprised he doesn't run away. Like, why does he have to be, you know, in living with Harry pretty much? I'm surprised as cowardly as he is that he wouldn't just, you know, go to I th- China. Like, just I think it's his <laughs> cowardliness again. He probably doesn't think he can make it on its own, on his own. Yeah, or he thinks that Hogwarts is the safest place with all the Dementors surrounding it, and why would Black come there? Right. Um, but if he really knew his friend, he would know that Sirius is going to definitely show up. But, you know, he's probably been transforming and stealing food from the Weasley fridge for years now. Right. Um, that's that's probably why they don't have enough food to eat sometimes. Oh. Yeah. That was bad. But <laughs> um, anyway, after this whole incident with, uh, with Crookshanks, Ron is not speaking to Hermione. Um, and that's just one instance of these two chapters where either Hermione's angry at Ron or Ron's angry at Hermione. Um, and I'm just saying to myself, wow, this couple is fighting already. Yeah. Um, it's it's already starting the the ship the ship is already starting. However, there is another scene. I'm gonna I'm just gonna jump to it um, at the end when the portrait gets slashed by Sirius Black. Spoiler alert! Hermione grabs Harry's arm and says, um, "Actually, the line is oh my." Hermione says. Hermione exclaimed and grabbed Harry's arm. Oh so I was thinking Harmony Ship, right? <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> <Yeah. But laughs> <laughs> Definitive proof. <laughs> But I'm not, you know. I, I personally am a Harry Hermione. I was, shipper, I was too in the in the beginning. I was, I was really determined on Harry and Hermione. Like by the end, like I agreed to accept it. And now, of course, I'm fine with it. Really? But in the beginning, I was all Harry Hermione. <laughs> I was. I've never been that way. That's the kind of op flip for me because I, I, of course, reading the books, I was just like, it's so obvious, it's Hermione Ron. And then, like when <laughs> yeah. afterwards, though, I kind of, I while I'm not a Harry Hermione shipper, I do understand the logic behind the ship i wouldn't use that particular she grabbed his arm moment i mean i wish i I can't remember my thoughts like right now all my memories are tainted by what i think now because you know when i I, when i read this book i guess i was like 10 so i don't think i my mind was even going there but i've definitely never shipped harry hermione Quite, quite right. Um, maybe I was jumping the gun a little bit by saying it's a it's a Harry Hermione ship moment here, but I'm just going to point to all those in the series because I'm sure there's I mean, a pattern. Every moment for me was a ship moment for those two. So <laughs> it's what we all really want. But anyway, um, there's a little bit more about Hermione's uh, lack of appreciation for divination on page 112. She uses some really awesome logic in terms of why um, Lavender's pet dying is not necessarily evidence worthy for. Um, Professor Trelawney having predicted, predicted it. I do love this scene. Because, you know, Hermione just states, well, you know, Lavender, if you had a bunny rabbit that was relatively young, why would you be dreading that it was going to die if it was so young? And Lavender just says, I don't, like, she's completely, she has no idea. And then Ron just kind of comes in and says, uh, what does he say? Uh, um, don't mind Hermione, Lavender, said Ron loudly. She doesn't think other people's pets matter very much. <laughs> <laughs> 
So logic completely out the window. Hermione just gets angry, pissed off, and storms away. And I just thought that was such well, a hilarious first, scene. On the topic of shipping, this is our first, I guess, Lavender Ron Hermione interaction. You're right. Oh yeah. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of romance for these, you know, thirteen year olds. Wouldn't that be weird but, if uh, that is like Lavender's attachment to Ron? One day in third year, he comforted me over my dead bunny. <laughs> I love him so. And that's where it all yeah, starts. That's where it all began. Gross. <laughs> um, so Harry, as we know, uh, moving further along the chapter, he really wants to go to Hogsmeade. Um, and he actually approaches, approaches Professor McGonagall, who says, I'm sorry, I can't sign your form. And I was wondering to myself, well, you know what? You, I think you could probably sign that form, but you're not doing it because you're looking out for Harry. Right. Um, do you think she could have bent the rules? Yes, definitely. Yes. I think a lot of people, I, I think everybody Harry encounters about this could have bent the rule. I think any <laughs> other year without Sirius Black on the loose, she would have done it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I kind of have to be like, really, Harry? Because they mention even, like, oh, Dean, who was particularly good with the quill, could have forged a signature. Like, why didn't you try that first? It's what I would have like, done. I would have signed it myself. I mean, yeah, if of every kid ever has forged things on, like, bad test grades, so... Well, Please. yeah, and it's interesting to think too. If he had gotten it signed, would they have let him go? Because probably not. I don't think so. No, I, I don't think they would have had to at all. I think they would have stopped him. I think they would have still let him go if he had the signature. <sighs> um, they maybe would have had a, a bodyguard. Yeah, that's fair. Maybe I, that Hermione's attitude, especially in the in this in these scenes, really bothers me because you know I know Hermione's you know a rule follower and. Wants Harry, cares about Harry's safety, but if she knows that Harry can't go and that fact's not changing, like, does she really need to be, you know, well, it's for the best? I don't know. I, She's I think a little... She, I, I know it's to her character, but the point is that she is one of Harry's best friends, and this is a depressing situation for him that, you know, I find, I just was annoyed that she can't Yeah, doesn't she come off as really overprotective here? Like, Not overprotective, just self-righteous kind of, of just... You know, well, that's, you know, those are the rules. That's the way it should be. Like, you shouldn't even be pitying yourself. Well, you know, that I think, like you said, that's Hermione's character. And I think, really, she, in a, in a weird way, I think that's her way of showing that she cares. Like, Harry just doesn't perceive it that way. Because, I mean, she's trying to do the same thing with Lavender, where she's like, I care that your bunny died, but you have to realize that that's not why your bunny died. Like, she's trying to be very logical and level-headed in a very emotional moment, and she's always like that until... And she succeeds. It's, it's very logical. Yeah, no, she's, she's, um, it's not that she's not right. It's just that she's not really kind of appealing to the emotional side of the argument and right. so but I, knowing i was just saying knowing that the fact's not going to change she doesn't need to convince him she should just be a nice friend i think that's just her mighty being her naggy self that she doesn't break until later years where it's, she i mean <laughs> that, that's still carrying over from her early years where she just cannot help but keep like sticking a you know a fork in your side and just being like yes that's right these are the rules ha ha ha, ha. so I, I, so i think this like this these whole scenes are really cool of analyzing and Hermione because I, we're getting a sense of who she is as a character and who she's becoming um and it, it just so helps that she's in a very moody place because of course she's experiencing many more hours of the day uh via the time travel but it's true she can't really express this emotional side and ron has ron whereas ron is like all emotion mm-hmm. um and kind of acts by instinct. Um, so on page 116, we are we see Professor Lupin. Uh, Harry cannot go into Hogsmeade, but Lupin finds him, brings him into the office, 
Um, Filch first finds Harry and says, what are you doing? And Harry's like, you know, I'm just walking around. But then on page 116, Lupin runs into Harry and says, what are you doing? And here's the quote, in a very different voice from Filch. And I just thought that one section there is like, how much does this guy care? He is so nice. Um, no, just, you're just kind of embedded in the line. Oh, yeah. That's why I love Lupin. He's just, you know what I mean? That's why you love him, Michael. He's the yeah, he's, he's, just, he's just awesome. <laughs> I mean, not, yeah. not only is he a great teacher, but he cares about the students during the off hours, too. And, he, you know, I, I almost feel like if, even if it wasn't Harry specifically, if he saw a student kind of just walking by and they looked a little down, he'd just be like, hey, what's up? So he's going to. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I love him. <laughs> Um, however, on the bottom of 116, where Harry's in Lupin's office, I have noted what I believe is a writing mistake. Um, if I would go back, I would correct this as a writer. Um, it, sorry if I call out the, uh, the head of our entire fandom, but, um, the scene is he, let's see, Professor McGonagall told me, said Lupin passing Harry a, a chipped mug of tea. You're not worried, are you? No, said Harry. Um, all right. So just remember that what Lupin said, asking if he's worried. Uh, so this is in Harry said, he thought for a moment of telling Lupin about the dog. He seen him in Magnolia Crescent, but decided not to. He didn't want Lupin to think he was a coward, especially since Lupin already seemed to think he couldn't cope with a boggart. Something of Harry's thoughts seemed to have shown on his face because Lupin said, anything worrying you, Harry? So if you think about it, that section isn't bad. So Harry says, no, Harry lied. He drank a bit of tea. And then he's like, yes. Now the thing about, which is weird about that section, is if you think about it in terms of time, um, basically it's Lupin, Lupin says, you're not worried, are you? There's a pause in which Harry thinks in his head all these thoughts, and then he says, anything worrying you, Harry? Again? Um, so just the idea of him repeating the question is kind of a... If you can just picture the scene in your mind, it, it, it would look weird on the screen, because it would just be Harry thinking to himself, and then the same question being um, repeated. Does that make sense to yeah, you Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, I mean, I think that's just the writer, like, pushing the scene with dialogue. Right. I don't um, think it's a mistake. I think it's just... I don't know, it's just her using her <clears throat> artistic license to sort of push the scene forward. And, you know, while it, might, while it may be a bit awkward and I do agree, it probably wasn't the best phrasing of words. If you do think of it, you know, Harry, it's not like Harry answered him. He's kind of having, like, these in, internal thoughts. Or am I wrong? Did he answer him? That, though that's the thing. He's having these internal thoughts in between, which, because right. you're reading it, it gives you the sense of time passing, but really it's not. Well, no, so it's because like Harry, it's, it's Lupin kind of being like, you're not worried, and then being like, all right, Harry, what's worrying you? Because I can tell by your silence something else. Yeah, that's yeah but, what, he, but he doesn't say that. Well, no, but that's what I got from the scene. I don't think Lupin wants to. That's kind of a common thing Harry encounters with um, most of the teachers who ask him this, which happens pretty much every book. Um, but it's like... Dumbledore does that too, where he's just like, are you worried? And then there's a pause and he's like, are you worried? <laughs> so it's, it's just kind of, I, I think everybody knows that they're, it's pretty easy to read a 13 year old's face when they're pretending that something's, that nothing's wrong. Um, is there anything bothering you, Harry? Is there? I must ask you again. <laughs> is there anything? Yeah. No, I. No, professor. Yeah. It's just, it's just like Caleb said, it's just kind of pushing that thought home pushing the narrative forward with Lupin just being just he just cares that's all so <laughs> yeah my, my critique was not of Lupin but more on a take, take a step back on the book yeah. itself on the writing itself I was like maybe this is maybe this is an edit that you would have made but you know you never know um so hopping to the end of the the chapter oh the, the tr- can I mention before before you do that I just wanted to say that I I just noticed that it's to, and you know 
aside from Bogarts, I think it's so interesting that Lupin has a lot of like creature that he does he teaches so many creatures um in his class like and i i know that of course the thing we're thinking here is that his classes are defense not care like haggard's but i always thought it was interesting that like lupin didn't offer to co-teach somehow with haggard because i think that would have helped haggard out a lot this year um because it seems like a lot of the questions and 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 curriculum that's addressed in Lupin's class seem more appropriate for Hagrid. I mean, they're learning about red caps and kappas and um, hinky punks. So it just, I just, I, and I was wondering too, if this is like, if, is this common third year curriculum or is this just something that Lupin specializes in? And because like you guys said, if he's a magical exterminator, that would definitely make sense. Um, but I just thought that was interesting yeah. that he's so creature based in his classes and that all of his creature a majority of his creatures kappas and um well any in the way he teaches about harry about dementors and um oh, what was the hinky punks that there there's a lot of water-based creatures and grindy lows he shows harry a grindy low in this scene mm. and there's a lot of water do you think it's kind of third year curriculum because if you think about all the professors we don't really get the sense of what goes on in um Quirrell's classroom, but for the rest of them, we kind of get an idea. Yeah. And, you know, Umbridge is the exception. Yeah. But they kind of all focus on different things. Mm-hmm. Because um, even, I think, in the divination classes, Trelawney kind of lays out their curriculum. Like, we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this. So, you know, I feel like each class kind of follows that. Like, this year we'll be tackling this subject because they kind of do take the same subjects just of varying levels of difficulty yeah okay that makes sense to me i just always thought it was weird that lupin and haggard never really interact in the book considering what they're teaching is pretty well i think on i think on that like lupin seems the type that he's gonna he's more of a bookish guy and he wants to be in the classroom and with the students but he doesn't seem the type to really get his hands dirty oh that's um, funny because i see him like the exact opposite like I'd see you him do? reverse because it's mentioned that like in their first class they're so shocked that he wants to do a practical like like a hands-on practical lesson. Yeah, I agree with Michael. So he never. Yeah, but I think there's what I'm saying is there's a difference between hand-on hands-on with the creatures in a classroom versus hands-on with like in the mud in the dirt with the with Hagrid and the the flabber like the the worms and the uh, the different creatures outside. Um, even though, as we know, Lupin spends a great deal of time outside. Yeah naturally well, <laughs> yeah but no i, I get I, I could see your point but I, I i personally don't think like just from what i've read of lupin i think he'd be more up for that i just thought it was weird that he never addresses that with hagrid um no, that's but, interesting yeah anyway you've uh i mean michael you have a lot of points there's uh if there's another one that you want to land on towards the end uh we have some. yeah I'm, I'm looking that the, the other thing comes a little uh, was the thing with lupin's discussion with harry when he points out fear um which i do think is a very important part of the book that we shouldn't that we shouldn't go over or we shouldn't miss rather just that fear of the dementors is uh, fear itself yeah yeah no i think i, I just think it's really um interesting because when i hear the quote about that when he says that suggests what you fear most of all is fear, very wise. And I immediately connect that <laughs> personally with, and, you know, I don't think this connection is encouraged for, like, I don't know, for British listeners, but as an, a, an American reader, um, I think immediately of Franklin Roosevelt saying the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Um, 
And when I looked into kind of, I was like, I wonder if that's because that's such a famous quote about fear. I was like, I wonder if Rowling was pulling from that in any way, because I, what I thought was interesting is that Roosevelt was president during World War II, which is the war that is mirrored in Harry Potter. Um, and that his greatest contemporary was Churchill, who also, that both of them were suffering from physical ailments and, and mental, like Churchill had heavy depression, which he called his black dog. Um, uh-huh. And um, there, and also, of course, the connection to Dementors there, obviously. Well, um, Roosevelt suffered from polio, and both of them initially kind of tried to keep their ailments to themselves and not let anybody know because they were worried it would fail their the countries they were taking charge of. Well, that's that's very interesting because that leads exactly into Lupin, who is constantly suffering from his own ailment yeah. and must. Yeah. You know. So I just I didn't know because I, like when I thought of Roosevelt I thought that's an odd thing because as an American that's immediately who I jumped to with that quote. But I thought that was interesting that Rowling would I you know, she's quite worldly and knowledgeable so I don't know if she if she meant to be referencing that or if there was something I think else. it could be it it could be. It could be a direct reference. So. Um All right, so after after that scene we get back to the Towards the end of the chapter, Harry and Hermione and Ron, they've just dumped a whole lot of candy on Harry, and he, they clearly they have had a great time. And there's the end feast, um, and there are actually some ghosts doing a cool dance. Um, and I don't know who decorated the hall. I don't know who generally does or who organizes all these ghosts together um, to do dances and stuff. I can even imagine just the Bloody Baron trying to rehearse something like that. So they get back to the common room, and there's a big crowd outside of the portrait hall. We don't know what happened. Percy comes through. Make way, make way. I'm head boy. Please. <laughs> Pushes some first years aside. They fall off to their doom off the, the stairs. But anyway. <laughs> some bottomless pit they're nearby. they're in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we realize the fat lady is gone, and Percy says, I, I actually can't do anything because I'm just a, a you know student here. So he calls Professor Dumbledore. On his um, phone. And Professor Dumbledore comes pretty much on the spot. Um, and asks where the fat lady is, and Peeves actually says, oh, she uh, she ran away, they have to find her. And then we realize from Peeves that it was old Sirius Black who had slashed the, the, uh, the portrait Wait, can you read the, and, I want to, we should get Peeves' dialogue in here. Oh, absolutely. I loved the way Peeves brought it up, like, kind of dropping casually right. <laughs> that bomb like versus bomb. how it's done in the book, which in the movie, which is more melodramatic with uh, the Sirius uh, Black. Right, I'm going to, well, I'm going to start with so we see this, this the slash portrait. Oh my! Hermione exclaimed and grabbed Harry's arm. I'm just putting that out there again. <laughs> oh yes! <laughs> Dumbledore took one quick look at the ruined painting and turned his eyes somber to see Professor McGonagall, Lupin, and Snape hurrying towards him. We need to find her," said Dumbledore. <laughs> Professor Ooh, McGonagall. Since when does he talk like that? <laughs> Please go to Mister Filch at once and tell him to search. Yeah, what's wrong with Dumbledore tonight? Dumbledore's possessed. Every painting in the ca- he speaks very slowly because he's old. Uh, for the for the fat lady, um, sounds like a smoker. <laughs> and then, all right, and then Peeves says, "You'll be lucky," said a cackling voice. It was Peeves, the poltergeist, bobbing over the crowd and looking delighted. He's having a great time, even though this is this is terrible. What do you mean, Peeves? Said Dumbledore calmly. Sorry, I, I, I actually that wasn't so calm. That was more of a Michael yeah. Gaiman. What do you mean? <laughs> he like grabs Peeves by the throat and like rings him out. Just hitting Peeves around. <laughs> Peeves, did you put your name in, in the that fire? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Peeves uh, didn't dare taunt Dumbledore. 
Um, ashamed your, your headship, sir. Doesn't want to be seen. She's a horrible mess. Saw her running through the landscape up on the fourth floor, sir. Dodging between the trees, crying something dreadful, he said happily. Poor thing, he added, unconvincingly. Did she say who did it? said Dumbledore quietly. Oh, yes, Professor Head. Right, so that's not... No. <laughs> that's... Peeves is messing up on that part. Um, with the air of one cradling a large bombshell in his arms, because it is, it is one, he got very he got very angry when she wouldn't let him in, you see. Peeves flipped over and grinned at Dumbledore from between his own legs. <laughs> what? Nasty temper he's got. That's serious black. Cut. Dun, dun, dun. End of scene. That was smooth. That was quite a reading. <laughs> I mean... Thank you. <laughs> Maybe that can act as my audition. <laughs> did she say who did it? Said Dumbledore quietly. <laughs> I just mind. really want like an alternate scene where like Peeves doesn't answer immediately, and like Dumbledore just sends him flying across the like the the room, slamming into walls and doing horrible <laughs> things to him. I mean, if Michael Gambon—that's what he. Yeah. That's that's the. The movie he like movie. puts he like pins peeves to the ground with the heel of his boot by his throat and just like <laughs> demands an answer. I really like that his Dumbledore and Michael Gaiman Dumbledore's solution to everything is. Did you put your name in the goblet of fire? It doesn't matter what the situation is. <laughs> That's the. I believe Michael Gaiman didn't even read the books. No, he didn't. He didn't read the books. Well, I'm still a huge fan of him, so let's not bash him too much. Okay, we only bash Pottermore right. on the show. That's the only collective. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there ends the, the chapter discussions for this week And now I believe we have a special feature Coming your way The Beast Inquisition Hagrid, is that a dragon's egg? Yep, what I got there is a Norwegian Ridgeback They're rare them Hagrid, you live in a wooden house We've already talked a bit about the Boggarts And I think we're going to go into a bit, go into it a little bit more in depth In our Beast Inquisition special feature so, on the subject of Boggarts, I'm really interested in to what extent they can take on the attributes of the form they turn into. So, you know, we see Boggart that turns into a spider, you know, acts like a spider, looks like a spider. The Boggart that turns into Snape, you know, appears to be looking like Snape. So, I wanted to know, if Harry's Boggart didn't turn into a Dementor and it turned into Lord Voldemort instead, would... What form of Lord Voldemort would that have taken? How, to what extent could it act like Voldemort? What can it do? What damage can it cause? What actually is it? Is it just, does it just look like him or can it actually do anything and act like it? Well, I, I definitely think he would see him on the back of Coral's head because I think that form is more <clears throat> terrifying and um, dangerous than the, the young Riddle memory version at this point. Mm. So are you saying that the Boggart the Boggart would reflect the Voldemort that Harry had the memory right, of. Right, Not the one that he met as a baby or the form that he would right. be eventually, the full body yeah, form. Yeah, because if it's basing it off of his fear, I think that's what we would see. Yeah. Okay, but how is it able to act? Like, can it do spells? Can it cause any damage? Because Lupin appears to be, you know, nervous at the idea of Voldemort appearing in the classroom, is that just because he doesn't want to create Yeah, panic? I think that, yeah. that stems from him the, not wanting the students to see Lord Voldemort in front of them. Um, we don't ever really <clears throat> get much about what the Boggart can actually do, but I really don't think it can you know, physically harm them. I, can, I think it can maybe go as far as like really damage someone mentally and psychologically, but physical mm -hmm. harm, I think it may not be able to go that far. 
No, but the Bogart that turns into the Dementor, you know, it acts like a Dementor. It doesn't, you know, Lupin says, you know, the real Dementor would be so much worse. But the point is, it does cause those feelings of, you know, feeling sad, feeling cold. Right. Because we know when Harry faces it. So, you know, it's taking on those attributes. So it's like, where is the line drawn? Well, I think it is definitely a very special case with the Dementors because of their nature. Like, they act on a psychological and mental level um, more than just, like, Mm -hmm. a physical, like, a spider can bite you or, you know, um, whatever else. Well, it's I think what's interesting about what Laura's asking is, like, because it's addressed a little bit in Pottermore. I wasn't really impressed by the entry on Bogarts because it pretty much told us everything we already know. Shocking. But... The but the ending paragraph cited some bogarts that have existed in the past. Um, let's see, we got the famous bogart. Famous bogarts include the old Boggle of Canterbury, believed by local muggles to be a mad cannibalistic hermit that lived in a cave, but in reality, a particularly small bogart that had learned how to make the most out of echoes. The bludgeoning bogart of Old London Town, a bogart that had taken on the form of a murderous thug that prowled the back streets of 19th century London, but which could be reduced to a hamster with one simple incantation, and the screaming bogey of Strathtoli, a Scottish bogart that had fed on the fears of local muggles to the point that it had become an elephantine black shadow with glowing white eyes, but which Lyle Lupin of the Ministry defeated in a match by trapping it in a matchbox. And the interesting there thing there to me is that if a Bogart takes up residence somewhere and there's enough rumors that spread about what it could be, it's like if everybody in the area has the same fear of that Bogart, it can it seems to grow in the capacity of what it can do. Yeah, it perpetuates it for the Bogart. I think that what's really cool about thinking about those again, because I hadn't thought about those in a while, is how different the bog arts can be from one another because of like what you just mentioned. Um, each of those bog arts you meant, you list read off became very different things. Like the one that became just like this shadow sort of form. Like that's, it's really mm-hmm. interesting. It's an abstracting. And I also think it's interesting how it, she even just the small detail of saying a particularly small bog art, like what makes one bog art, I guess, different from the next in size or power because you know we don't know what one looks like mm-hmm. on its in its own well, form. Well, even so. on that, even on that, Laura, to what degree are these creatures sentient and alive? Like as I as I want to say, um, um, and are they necessarily evil, or can they not help their natural actions and what they do? And when when you laugh them to death, are they really eliminated? And what are the ethical concerns with that? I think bogarts are really heavily uh, tied to at least in this description on Pottermore and. Rowling's kind of mentioned it before, too, but I th- she kind of suggests that, like Dementors, um, they're non-beings. They, they're not really alive, and they don't really die. Um, they just kind of, they're, as she's... Created out of chaos. Yeah, they're, like uh, it's also, yeah, mentioned that kind of like a poltergeist. Um, it's almost like these things are somehow related in a way, but yeah, I think that like it, it's it's some these are things. It's so hard for me to kind of comprehend how this works because, like you guys were talking about the Dementors last week, Dementors don't copulate; they just kind of appear. And um, <laughs> I think that's what's so neat about these creatures, and that what makes them truly part of the magical world is they just are birthed out of emotion, and they are they disappear based on emotion as well. Right. Now, I would I would think this theory if it wasn't for the fact that this bogger you know is just appearing in a staff room and lupin asked if they could just keep it around but 
we know the boggart that appears with in front of Mrs. Weasley in the Order of the Phoenix, like where she's afraid of, you know, all of her family dying, and that's what she sees. Now, are boggarts created kind of out of situations where people yes. are living in fear? Just how right now everyone's kind of fearing serious black. Is it preying on that? Like, I like that so much. What if they just come out of places of tension? What if the, the Bacart, it's a Bacart in the staff room, right? Maybe it came out of there because there's tension between Lupin and Snape. Well, and there's also yeah, or just, a large collection of people in Hogwarts that are all fearful mm-hmm. of, well, Voldemort is a general fear. But, you know, there, I think when you have a, the larger collection of people you have, like, I think that's definitely a place where a bog art would pop up. It's said right. that that's where a poltergeist tends to take shape as well. And the Dementors, I'm sure, are not helping everyone and feeling and feeling happy yeah. and not on tension on edge. I think the interesting thing too about bog arts is that because they are part of folklore, they Merlin didn't make them up. But the thing that's interesting to Ooh. me is that unlike. Other things where other creatures that Rowling has incorporated from folklore, where she usually just uses what's been given before, she doesn't change it too much. Like the other creatures that are mentioned in Lupin's class, like Red Caps and um, Brindy Lowe's and Kappa's, they've all existed before in folklore. Um, and she pretty much sticks to that description. But I found Bogarts are not how she describes them at all. Um, and what she kind of did, because Bogarts are mostly just random things in every culture there's something there's so many different versions of a bogart and what she ended up doing i think was she kind of took them all into one thing and gave an explanation for it um is that true yeah because there that's cool. there's like this story about a bogart who was like a he was his body was buried under a tree and a man and wife like a husband and wife like in a cottage saw him like creeping outside their window and they think that they like the bogart let their horse loose and stuff and was causing mayhem around their house but and then there's another completely different story about a like a small smelly ugly bogart so it's kind of like she took all those stories and gave an explanation for them mm-hmm. rather than go off of the folklore of what it is I never knew that. Thank, mm. Thanks for yeah. bringing that up. Oh, yeah, no problem. Yeah, and I mean, I know the Bogart that turns into Snape, we don't see it talk or hear it talk in the books or the films. But um, if I remember correctly, when Hermione's Bogart turns into McGonagall, telling her that she failed everything um, in the Defense Against Dark Arts final exam, like, that Bogart's talking, it's acting like McGonagall. You know, I just, I'm... I wanted to know when the Bogarts turn into humans, which I imagine is rare. You know, most people don't specifically fear humans. Um, Just to what extent can they do anything? Well, I think it's a question of is the Bogart talking or if it's just the Bogart is just creating a manifestation of what is in the person's head um, and is therefore talking. But can it say anything independent of that manifestation? Maybe not. I don't think so. I'm pretty sure whatever it's because I think the interesting thing to note, like Laura said, is that Snape doesn't talk to Neville as a Bogart. And I think that is manifested Mm -hmm. because Neville doesn't necessarily just fear that Snape is talking to him or anything that Snape says to him. He fears Snape. It's just the idea. So the Bogart. Though Snape was going to, Snape was about to reach into his robes. Did anybody catch that line? Yeah, that was weird. What was he going to do? What was he doing? <laughs> what was he doing, Michael? I, 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 I'll leave that to fans. We're going to stop. Writers. We're going to stop with that. We're going to stop there. 
And now that actually leads us very nicely into the question of the week, um, which uh, so as I brought up before with Harry and Hermione, there was uh, I thought there was something going on a little bit, a little bit of a, a harmony ship, as you may know, and, and you know as you guys are all very familiar with the fandom, the, this fandom loves shipping. Um, from a very long time, Michael, I'm sure you know better than all of us um, the kind of things fans can write oh. about uh, their favorite oh, ships. Oh yeah, if you, it's like a bogart. If you think it, it will appear. So, <laughs> <laughs> and if you can think it, it probably already. Exists, and I say that with um, so somewhere. much love and affection. <laughs> right. So, um, so, so our question for you guys today is: Did Joe leave some ships in the series, some like some hints and details about relationships, and just kind of pull us along and not complete them in a sense? So are there certain ships running along like Harry and Hermione, Neville and Luna, like maybe a, like a stream of hints? We all think that we've found them, but do you think she did this intentionally? Um, and specifically in terms of Harry and Hermione, do you think on some level she was building us up to think that even though the Harry and uh, – sorry, the Hermione and Ron stuff was very clear, did she also do some stuff between Hermione and Harry? Um, we're, we're going to read some answers to this on the next episode of Alohomora, but I'm very interested to see the responses. Yeah, I really like this question because – Thinking as like we do the rereads, I always think back to my mindset of that first read, and this definitely is really relevant to that. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll be watching these patterns as they go through the entire, uh, as they go as we go through yep. the entire series. All right. Well, we want to definitely send out a big thanks to Michael for joining us again, especially with the discussion we had on Lupin and provide a lot of insight. So thanks for joining us, man. Oh, my pleasure. And can I just make a little quick announcement about audio fictions? Absolutely. Um, Certainly. I just wanted to let uh, your listeners know and our listeners know and anybody who's listening that in late March, um, inspired by you guys at Alhamora, uh, Audio Fictions is going to be doing our very first live show. Um, we're going to be reading a short fiction. And at the moment, my entire team of Murmuggles uh, and myself, Jesse Lights, Equinox Chick, Chidada.17, The Great Om, and Apollonius are scheduled to be present for that. We'll also be making a, f a few more special announcements during the live show, um, in addition to kicking off our new season of podcasts, um, where we read fan fictions that our listeners select. And we always value nominations of stories from MuggleNet fan fiction. So uh, you guys can head over to the Black Lake section of the MuggleNet fan fiction beta forums to drop us a nomination. We can always use more. And if you don't have an account at MNFF, you can sign up for one in a jiffy and let us know what you'd like to read. And you can also, for now, download shows from our archive via iTunes and Libsyn. And you can follow Audio Fictions on Twitter and Facebook, as well as watch the headlines on MuggleNet for further updates on our live show. And it was great to have you on, Michael. Thank you. Um, and we'll be plugging your live show all over MuggleNet when that when that happens. Great. Thank you very much. Um, and thanks for having me. Oh, of course. No, it's always it's always fun. Um, I like to get in my voices too, just when you're here, because <laughs> it's fun. Um, but yeah, if you would like to be a guest host on Alohomora, and I'm, I'm talking to you, the fan listening, you can just email a clip of yourself analyzing the books to alohomorapodcast at gmail.com. Um, just make sure that in your recording you have the appropriate audio and recording equipment so that your voice comes out loud and clear. If you want to contact us in any other way, our Twitter, please follow us at, at, at alohomoramn. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash openthedumbledore. Uh, feel free to leave us a voicemail. Um, we may read some of your messages on future episodes at 206-GO-ALBUS, which is 
462-5287. Check us out on the main site at alohomora.mugglenet.com. Submit anything you'd like. You can email us at alohomorapodcast at gmail.com. And, of course, do not forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. Yeah, and so we have a really awesome announcement for our merchandise store, which you can access by going to the Alohomora homepage, and it is right up on the top top bar, and you will see a link that says store. Um, but by the time this episode releases, the following week, February 25th through March 5th, for one week, we are offering $5 off for any purchase in our Alohomora store, so be sure to check it out. So right now, the store um, has um, shirts with our logo on them and some sweatshirts and some things like that, but they're really great. You can even do custom colors, and there will also be some more awesome shirts in the near future, such as host shirts, which I'm really excited about. Um, I know Noel will be excited about desk pig merchandise, and then um, some wizard werewolf unicorn and some other similar little things from the show that we've transformed into some shirt logos and designs and there's going to be a lot of more things such as iphone cases totes bag water bottles etc so hopefully all some of that will be up by the time we have this really great sale so be sure to check that out and don't forget about the alohomore app which is available in the u.s for iphone and android and in the uk for iphone uh, for a dollar 99 or 99 pence um i recently put up a vlog up there about owls so that's something you can watch we besides host vlogs we also have transcripts of the show bloopers alternate endings which are quite funny because lots of stuff happens behind the scenes that you guys don't know about um and much more all right well that will do it for this episode of alohomora i'm caleb graves i'm noah freed i'm laura riley and thank you for listening to episode 23 of alohomora open the dumbledore too personal but like what how would you turn your boggart into something funny i don't really know what my boggart would be right now that's that's hard like i think uh, i think i mean i hate snakes like i hate them but i don't i don't know if that's what it would turn into because i don't think that's really my deepest darkest fear would you do what Pravati did in the movie and turn it into a giant, frightening jack No, because that was more terrifying. <laughs> that was more scary, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. No, see, like, that was that would be even more of my fear. It's like a meta fear of not being able to turn the bogger into something funny enough. Like, of getting anxious that, like, no one's going to laugh. But <laughs> I don't know, because my biggest fear is fish. Blowfish, specifically. And Really? Yeah. <laughs> and you can make I, it pop or something. Hmm? No, that's that's like what I'm afraid of. Like that was, yeah. <laughs> you just oh. made her fear worse, Noah. <laughs> maybe maybe no, you could deflate. Little, maybe caught, the deflate and go. <laughs> no, when I was little, I caught a blowfish and I thought it was going to explode and it was traumatizing. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what my bogart is. I think it's more abstract. Mine is so on the. Noah, did you fill out the form to do the work competition for Mysticon? What did yes. you? Because they asked what 
your box art would be. I, I remember what I put. I put mine was very abstract. I put a cage. So a cage. Yes. What? Well, when we face off in a cage match, now I'll know. You don't and... want that. <laughs> okay. So I don't know what I would do to fix to change that. That would be really hard. I don't know. I guess like the bars disappearing. That's not funny though. I'm gonna need like my blowfish to turn into like the Swedish fish. Just put it on dessert instead. <laughs> well, I know what you're getting for your birthday. Thanks. Whoops. 